You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee, uh, the Driving Law podcast that deals with all things related to driving. I am not Kyla Lee. I am Paul Doroshenko. I'm your guest host today because Kyla is not available this week, and we are doing a special episode on speeding, and this is because I get to choose the topic. So uh, I have been interested in speed enforcement my entire life. When I first started driving, uh, within weeks I was pulled over for speeding and not issued a ticket, but it did cause me to start thinking about speed enforcement. And so I ended up uh, in my career becoming a lawyer who also defends speeding tickets. And so we're going to speak to two uh, people today who have extensive careers in speed enforcement. We'll be speaking with Grant Gokatro, who's a retired corporal, uh, who holds the record for uh, issuing the most excessive speeding tickets in the province. He's been retired for two years, yet still holds the record, is my understanding. And we will be speaking with Tim Shuey, who is a retired RCMP officer with a long history in traffic enforcement. He's also the creator of the drivesmartbc.ca website, which uh, deals with all things traffic and is followed by police officers, lawyers, um, and people who are interested in traffic enforcement uh, around the province and uh, probably across Canada, I would think. It's a very popular website. So without further ado, let's get going. Okay, Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. And it's nice to actually get a chance to talk to you because you and I have talked in uh, direct messages on Twitter many times. Uh, but never actually talked. So nice to talk to you. Thank you. How how are you doing today? I'm just fine, thank you. Good. Welcome to my special uh, on speeding. And uh, I just want to get right into it and start talking about it. You were an RCMP officer for many, many years. And just before we started recording, you were about to tell me when you had your training for speed estimation. I never had any formal speed estimation training. Um, I started back in the Kootenays as an auxiliary constable, and they actually let me take my first radar training course as an auxiliary, which is perhaps a little out of the ordinary. And uh, I had a number of courses, of course, over my regular years of service after that. Um, And of course, given that I've been retired since 2005, some of the details might be a little hazy. Well, I don't expect, I'm not going to cross-examine you about it. So, um, but when you had your training was, I mean, the, the, so you didn't really have any formal speed estimation training. You were, you were already, uh, uh, you know, out there basically wearing a badge and driving a cruiser. And you used the speed measuring device and, and gained experience in its use. And I generally found that after I had some practice, I knew by looking at something as it approached me that it was worth measuring because it was clearly above the speed limit. But uh, I don't think I would ever venture to tie myself to uh, saying that somebody was doing 55 in the 50 zone and I could tell you that plus or minus two kilometers an hour every day, all day. So often, this is one of the things that gets me, and this is why I want to talk about speed estimation. I mean, your speed estimation um, experience, rather than training, I guess, comes from you making the observation, then activating some sort of equipment, either radar or laser, to sort of make a determination at that point. And your training, you know, not the speed estimation training, is to take enforcement action if it falls within a certain margin. Is that fair to say that's the way it was trained back then? And the margin was was left to me to decide what to be comfortable with. Okay. Because I had to prosecute the ticket and I had to justify writing it, so I had better be satisfied that I was doing something properly. Did you have a standard that you used in your mind? Like, uh, uh, were you thinking, I mean, I know the ticket has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, 
but did you have a standard in your mind for um, what the uh, sort of the degree of probability would have to be for you to take enforcement action? In other words, if you saw it and you thought, oh, I, I believe a, a substantial likelihood that this person is exceeding the speed limit by 20 kilometers an hour and my radar device says they're exceeding it by 26 kilometers an hour, I mean, was that satisfactory to you, even if it was, you know, maybe on a curve or something like that? Like, in your mind, it might not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but if it was, it looked like really significant likelihood, was that enough? Personally, no. And there were so many out there that it was just not worth dealing with something that was questionable because they'd be back again. You just had to wait. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm reluctant to tie a margin to it uh, because people listen to that and then say, oh, the cops don't write tickets unless you're going X kilometers an hour over the speed limit, so I can take liberty and nobody will bother me. Uh, we had one rule of thumb for rural highway and another rule of thumb for uh, in town, which was a little narrower. And then when it came to playground and school zones, perhaps a little bit tighter yet. Um, but enough over the limit that it's not a question of, of, oops, it was a little bit. It's They knew they shouldn't have been doing what they were doing. Yeah, I can say any time that I was ever pulled over speeding, and there was a lot of times back when I first started driving, I knew what I was doing. I mean, I, I knew when I saw that officer step out on the road. But, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they, they got me. And I think that seems to be the common experience for most people. And I, I, you know, I never know what goes through people's heads. I, I know that they're sometimes embarrassed and they're unhappy and they're upset at themselves. And uh, sometimes they come right out the window at me, too. Um, it, it was an interesting job. Did it? Were there ever occasions, I mean, if you monitor the experience of police officers in the States. And I've talked to a number of police officers in the States, particularly when I've been down in the U.S. for conferences, and it's, you know, something on my mind. Uh, and if I just see police officers on the street, I end up starting to talk to them. And one gets the sense that uh, pulling over cars in the States is a much more frightening experience. Were you ever frightened when you were pulling people over? Like, were there circumstances where you pulled somebody over for speeding and you thought, oh my God, my spider senses are tingling and even worse than that, I, I stopped a vehicle in the middle of nowhere by myself one night, and as soon as the car pulled over, both front doors came open, two men stepped out and started back toward the car. Yeah. And, you know, if that isn't a threat, I don't know what is. Uh, I drew my sidearm and I pointed it at him and I told him to get back in the car and sit down. Oh, no, no, no. They put their hands up in the air. They said, oh, don't worry about us. We're just trying to be friendly. Well, bad guys do that too. So now what? Yeah. Here I am backing down the side of the road and they're still coming. Yeah. Um, I was extremely fortunate that that's all they were. Yeah. Face value. But you never know. What happens if I would have shot one of them? Well, yeah. What happens if you shot one of them? What happens if one of them's got a shotgun behind their back? And that's something that I stop and think about every once in a while. How many times over my service on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere did I come really close to something and not have a clue? Yeah, no doubt. I, I get worried when I see police officers pulling people over, especially when it's on a lonelier highway. Uh, and uh, sometimes, I, you know... I, they look a little cavalierly walking up to that vehicle, and and you know you're probably fine in a busy, on a busy highway or a busy street. Um, you know, not being overly concerned about the actions of that person in the vehicle because there's so many witnesses, it's less likely that they're going to be motivated to do something stupid. But you know, when you're up on the highway, when you're <laughs> between Blue River and Valmont, and there's like nobody on the highway. Um, you know, I think you have to be pretty cautious in those circumstances. There's lots of circum places where there doesn't seem to be, you know, I, officers tell me there's no radio signal. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I sort of felt like a country hick. I, I actually have a friend who worked on California Highway Patrol. Yeah. 
and he came up for a visit, and we went out and worked together on a shift here yeah. one evening. And we're southbound on the highway, and I said, oh, look, we got an impaired driver. And the car's weaving back and forth, and it's a little slow. And I turn on the overhead lights, and he gets a little bit excited. And the car keeps on merrily driving down the highway. Uh, so... Uh, on with the alternating headlights and now he's starting to bounce up and down in the seat you know, yeah. he, he's getting excited they're going to run we got to worry about this you better call back up and I said no no it's uh, uh, just your run of the mill impaired driver here they aren't looking in their mirror we'll just wait a little bit and see what happens so yeah. on with the siren and on down the highway we go and it was probably four or five kilometers before the car pulled over. And he's just like a squirrel in a cage now. Yeah. They're going to run. Get ready. Get oh, ready. Let's goodness. go. Yeah. And I said, no, 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 no. No, just run the middle impaired driver here. And that's all it was. Yeah. Walk up, say hello, take a good look at everything, start making notes load them in the car back for a breath test. I bet your friend stayed in the cruiser. Yeah. And, and I, I feel sorry for him because he came up another time we stayed over in Vancouver and I wanted to go for a walk on the seawall and uh, he wouldn't go out. He says, I'm not armed. You, you don't go out in public unless you're armed. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's sad. That's a sad state of affairs. How do you feel? We're not doing very well for speeding here, are we? No, but this was interesting, so that's okay. Um, let's get back to speeding. So you had no formal training in speed estimation, and that is the thing that I found when I talked to every officer is that, you know, they all know that the speed estimate is an important part of their tracking history, and that's an essential element. You know, you have to testify about a, uh, an estimate when you're in court. Otherwise, you're not going to get very far. And, it, you know, it says right in the manual that you've got to have it in order to be able to take enforcement action. But the next thing that I find is that, like, nobody seems to be trained in speed estimation. So, I, you know, I, I, and it seems to be a long history of it. And I'm ready to write the book on the history of, of, um, of speed enforcement. And I'm finding officers basically, it's just to pass down information. And that's all all there is like it's the it's 14 lines in the in the training manual you know make sure that you estimate the speed beforehand well it's it's an interesting point because the courts recognize um, that if anybody with driving experience can express an opinion as to a vehicle speed and for the most part officers have had a number of years of driving experience before they ever join and get trained um, so they can express an opinion, but uh, I would be very reluctant on my own to to pin a number to it and and say consistently I can estimate a vehicle speed within plus or minus five kilometers an hour. Uh, when I've written the odd speeding ticket based on visual estimation alone. But the, the speed of the vehicle was out of the ordinary, and it was obvious to anybody without any experience looking at it that the speed was what it shouldn't be. So the um, was there any discussion that you recall? So there was, no, there was no speed enforcement training at depot, I guess. It was just basically once you got out there in the field, and that's when you were trained, and there might be a session to train new officers and, and that sort of thing. Yes. Okay. And then later on, you had training. Like you weren't, you were um, an officer before the LTI twenty twenty came out, for example, which is the first laser gun that we've used in Canada, um, speed detection gun. And so I guess you would have had some training then, and that's probably about the time they created that RCMP manual on it. What, I, do you I recall what so. year that was that you ended up with the that you started using the LTI twenty twenty? I was posted to Penticton when that came out, and it was probably in the, the latter part of my service there, and I was transferred away from there in 1997, so it was probably 95, 96. So before that, you were using radar, I assume? 
Always, yeah. yeah. And or pacing. Okay, pacing. Do, was there much training for pacing, do you recall, or was it basically just get behind the vehicle and figure it out? Get behind the vehicle and figure it out. So that's another thing. I just keep thinking there's so much of policing has been tested and is scientifically valid. Right. There's, you know, there's, there's lots that's been investigated with respect to breath testing equipment and fingerprinting and DNA and all of these things to gather evidence that we consider reliable. And each time I, you know, talk to officers and I start finding out about their history of speed enforcement, you know, this is what I hear. Like, okay, get behind the vehicle and follow it and figure it out. And I, I mean, a lot of times it's going to be correct. Right. But it's just not. Pacing is a simple thing. You just get behind and you make sure that the distance between the two vehicles doesn't get bigger and doesn't get smaller. And then you follow for a period of time to, at least for me, to make sure that that was the speed that the driver intended to be. And the speedometer I knew was uh, calibrated to start with. And oftentimes I would run the radar at the same time so that I knew that uh, what I was measuring was more than accurate yeah and you leave a, a tolerance and uh, that's a fairly simple thing you know if you're traveling along at 180 zone and you've been doing it for two kilometers it's, it's a pretty reasonable assumption they're speeding oh yeah when you get when you have a good distance that you're following i mean when you're behind them for a significant period i guess the uh every once in a while we get video of one and you're sitting there thinking to yourself well that's not enough time for you to <laughs> make any determination pacing but then you've got the officer who's followed somebody for three kilometers you know and in traffic basically i usually (laughs) did because you were watching to see what else was going on yeah yeah when you were trained did were you trained to use commentary driving methods or was oh yes yeah and did you do that over the course of your career um well when we were in driver training um Part of the training was that session where you had to give commentary to the instructor so he knew what you were observing while you drove. And I found it difficult to do until you had some practice with it. Uh, It it was one thing to watch it, but it was another thing to uh, give a running narrative of what you were seeing and what you were deciding to the instructor with the clipboard beside you while it was going on. Yeah, that'd be unnerving when somebody's basically testing you and monitoring you. And I never did well when somebody had a clipboard. Yeah. <laughs> the, the instructor was sick. Partway through my drive, he says, pull over here at the drugstore. I've got to go in and get something. So he goes in, and of course, the sweat's running off of me, and he's out of sight so I can relax. And I go, ah, slide down in the seat and put my knee into the siren button. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Yeah. Things happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, there was one day I was, um, I went to pick up a pizza at Nat's Pizzeria and uh, on Broadway, and there was a VPD cruiser, and it was probably 50 to 60 centimeters away from the, uh, from the side of the road, and it was idling. Uh, the lights weren't on or anything like that. It was just idling 50 to 60 centimeters away from the road. And, and um, I stopped there and uh, whoever I was with ran in to get the pizza. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. I thought, what is this? What is going on here? And I saw a police officer sort of uh, mulling around underneath the uh, awning. And then uh, another police cruiser drove up, handed him a set of keys. He locked his keys in his car. Mm-hmm. It was humiliating for the poor guy to, you know, <laughs> here, I am, here I am watching it the whole time. Well, you usually drove the same car on your shift, and it didn't take long before you learned that you went down and you had a spare key cut and you put it on your own key ring. Yeah, yeah, probably wise. It'd be, uh, I mean, it's that's humiliating to have to call into somebody. He probably had, uh, you know, at the time he probably had to go inside. I think his cell phone was probably in the car. He didn't seem to have anything with him. Anyway, it does happen. That a pizzaable offense. Yeah. Yeah, well, that would be a good term for it. Yeah, so, if- commentary driving. I want to get back to this a little bit because I've the um, you know as my father did this to me when I was learning to drive. He would tell me, "Okay, you should be sort of talking to yourself about some of the things that you see." Um, and so I started doing it and doing it more. And now my children are in the car, and I find it sort of a good exercise for them. Uh, and I'm just wondering, was it something that you were trained to do? You know, after you you were 
were out, uh, you know, as a constable, or was it just something you had to do in the for the sake of your, you know, dealing with exams? It was just in driver training. So huh. The instructor knew what you were doing when okay. you were driving. Okay. And and you had to keep up a good running commentary. It was I don't know if it is anymore, but it was actually a part of the class five road test here in BC. Oh really? Oh yeah. Huh. Yeah, you had to spend a minute or two uh, explaining to the examiner what you were seeing and what you were doing because of it. Hmm. I find when I do it with my children in the car, it does help me focus on on driving. And it's been a long time since I've done it, and it sort of came back to me. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's kind of a useful thing to do um, in training kids to drive. And my well, children are a long way from it, yeah. Well, you you know, you're talking about that vehicle on the roadside that you see that could pull out in any second. You're, you know, forces you to think about it and, and think less about the cell phone call that you're thinking that maybe you should make further on down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, how's the website going? It looks like you still have lots of popular followers, and it seems like uh, it's not uncommon for me to be talking to police officers in traffic court and for them to have it on their open on a tab in their on their phone. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of police officers who rely on it. Well, I'm I'm pleased that people find it useful. I enjoy doing the work as a hobby, and I know a lot of people are visiting it, and I do get feedback. And some of it's good, some of it's bad. The only thing that, that really concerns me some days is I provide the advice in good faith, and I will do my best to research if I don't understand it, but... Someday something might go wrong over something that somebody's misperceived, and I'll end up getting sued for it. Yeah, I think you could put a pretty good disclaimer on there and and protect yourself in that way. I mean, I get people calling who have even heard me on the radio and have decided that this is a defense, and they're going to go do the do-it-yourselfer trial, and then they lose. Uh, you know, what can you do? I mean, there's only so much you can do to try and try and uh, hope that people don't try and do it themselves and do it badly. It'll be really interesting to see what happens if adjudication replaces traffic court. Uh, in my experience, most people are in traffic court to say, I don't deserve this. The officer is picking on me. Everybody else was doing it. How come I'm the one with the ticket? It, it's relatively rare to have a, a reasonable legal defense to something show up in traffic court at any rate. Well, I'm, I'm glad to say that right now the uh, province seems to be shying away from it. So when David Eby was on the podcast several months back, he said, look, this is not a priority for us. We have, we have bigger fish to fry right now, like, you know, a major problem with money laundering. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that's the way it goes. I, I they're, experience with tribunals has not been um, the easy walk that they expected, and that's largely as a result of myself and Kyla pushing back with the uh, Superintendent of Motor Vehicles Tribunal. So I'm, I'm hoping that they don't go that direction, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. It's, you know, it's, it's maybe too tempting for them uh, down the road. But it, we're, I, I think they have a problem with that because they've upped the punishment so much for so many different offenses uh, and the consequences are so severe. There's not as much enforcement as I think there, you know, should be to deter the conduct. But the uh, there doesn't seem to be um, that the, the punishment has become so severe that I think they'd have problems sticking some of these things into tribunals. Yeah, I understood that 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 was probably something to be considered for implementation after e-ticketing has been rolled out. Yeah, and I know that they are. Uh, trialing e-ticketing around the province in some places right now, but that's still a ways away from ironing all the bugs out. Well, e-ticketing seems to be out there, and um, we are noticing that um, you know, just like police officers can make mistakes on handwritten tickets, they can make mistakes on e-tickets. So it's um, it's kind of funny because I think that was part of the purpose of that, but I, I think we also it was to expedite the. Uh, getting them into the system but that they've they've accomplished that or may accomplish that with e-ticketing i'm sure but getting it into a tribunal might be a very different thing 
But in any event, we'll have to wait and see. So we're going to wrap it up now. Um, thank you very much for talking to me. This was a little bit about speeding, a little bit about policing, a little bit about the experience of uh, being out there and uh, a commentary on, uh, I guess, the uh, different experience of a police officer from California and from Canada. I thank you for the opportunity to participate. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Nice to talk to you. This is a special episode today. We uh, don't have Kyla Lee on Driving Law with Kyla Lee, but uh, we uh, do have Grant Gottkotro. Grant is a retired corporal. He was uh, uh, seconded for some time to the Integrated Road Safety Unit. They called him Darth Radar because he uh, tended to uh, impound more vehicles for excessive speeding than any other police officer and has the record uh, in the province of British Columbia for that. And it's not that he was out to uh, uh, just get excessive Excessive speeders, uh, you know, it wasn't his desire to be uh, uh, necessarily impounding vehicles that way. He just happened to be fairly good at his job. So we're having a special episode on speeding. I welcome Grant to the show. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. So where are you right now? Yes, I'm up on the Coquihalla. Oh, well, I hope you pulled over and you're in a safe spot I to am, talk to me. I'm pulled over, lawfully stopped, <clears throat> using my hands-free device. Good. I don't want you to be committing any offenses while you're talking to me on the Driving Law podcast. I would be, uh, I would be inappropriate for me to uh, to keep you there. I concur. Thinking about talking about speed enforcement, I went and found one of the RCMP laser manuals that we have, and it says in there, under history of speed enforcement, since the invention of the motor vehicle. Police forces around the globe have been fighting a battle against speeders. One of the main reasons for these battles is the ever-growing number of property damage, injury, and fatal collisions due to excessive speed. So I guess your whole job was to uh, try and uh, conduct that battle. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> odd, that's odd wording from, uh, from an organization that doesn't... Uh doesn't see value in speed enforcement. We were certainly poo-pooed in, in, at URSU. There was an anti-speed enforcement mandate. I was quite surprised by that when I went to URSU, but that's a different topic for another day. What surprised me looking at that is that they would even ever use the term battle against speeders. I mean, it's not a battle. It's a... Well, when, yeah, but when was that written? Well, I don't, uh, well, I mean, this is in the laser operator's reference manual, so it's not, you know, it's since laser was, uh, was you know, brought online. Well, it obviously wasn't written by somebody who uh, who knows anything about speed enforcement because it's not a battle, it's not a war, it's just another piece of enforcement that the police do. Sometimes to me it seems like, like fishing uh, because, you know, there you are, you're out there, you catch one, you reel it in, you know, you hit it, yeah. over, the, hit it over the head with a, uh, with a wooden mallet. Well, it is like fishing. You can't catch all the fish in the lake, so you catch one at a time. Now, what what about that, though? Sometimes you see police pull over more than one car. I did. Yeah. And is that appropriate? I mean, how do you do it? With a lot of skill and expertise. It is, it is, a, it is a skill set. You, you just can't, not just any officer can pull over four vehicles at once. It does take... Uh, you know, you have to watch a bit of the, you know, Dukes of Hazard and Rockford Files to figure that one out. But, um, but it can be done uh, at the at the end of the day, and as long as the officer has good tracking history on all four of those vehicles, which isn't impossible, you can tell when vehicles are all keeping perfect pace with each other, anyways. Um, but it doesn't normally happen. Normally, okay. it's just one at a time. Well, let's back up and talk about just sort of speed enforcement from the beginning, from the from the beginning of the time that you, you know, you're at the roadside or whatever you are as a police officer and you observe a vehicle that uh, is a potential target for speeding. How does it sort of play out for you? Well, you see a vehicle approach your location, the first thing you do is you kind of, you, we, we do what's called a, a visual estimation on that speed, on, on the vehicle. Um... And uh, for people that don't know what a visual estimation is that are listening, uh, uh, it's, it's basically everyone can visual estimate. Everyone can visual estimate a vehicle. You, you phone, how many people phone the police and say, there's speeders on my street, right? Yeah. Anyone can say cars are going too fast. It doesn't take 
any specialized training to do that. What the police have training to do is to assign a speed, a number on that visual estimation. So the first thing we do is we look at a car. Uh, so what I would do is I would see cars coming towards me and they're all kind of generally keeping, you know, general pace with each other. And there's always going to be one that's going way too fast compared to everybody else. So that becomes that person has drawn my attention. I look at that vehicle for several seconds and I can assign the speed to it and go, OK, well, he's doing I estimate him because it's his estimation. I visually estimate him to be doing 80 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone. And then I aim. Well, well, well let's let's talk let's talk about that visual estimation a little bit more because I want. Uh, I'm going to cut you off. Yeah, you noticed that it's awful. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Look, I'm not a professional. Kyla's more professional than me. I'm filling in for Kyla today. <laughs> if it was no, Kyla, she would have just let you talk all day. I'm I'm cutting you off. I have I have <laughs> things I want to know. So this is this is what I want to know. Um, uh, well, I want to know more about visual estimation because. I go to court fairly regularly. You've been in court with me uh, on speeding ticket trials. Yes. And, um, you know, the police officer will take the witness stand and they will tell you what their, they'll testify about their skills with visual estimation. And I've never seen a document ever presented to verify any of their assertions about their ability to conduct visual estimations. There's been plenty of times that I've heard visual estimation skills, like their their appraisal of their own skill. Yes. Where it, it is completely not believable to me and I'm sitting there wondering like does the does the JP who's presiding over this uh, traffic ticket realize that, that that's like impossible or so improbable to be like, not Can you believable? give me an example? Well the plus or minus two kilometers an hour. You know I've, I've been... only ever yeah well I only ever heard one police officer ever say that um, that he was plus or minus two kilometers an hour and not surprisingly he lost his ticket. No, oh, okay. Well, I've been because, in. I've had police officers JPs, tell me that in the hallway. Because, uh, because even the JPs um, see through the bullshit. Average for most police officers is between plus or minus five to ten kilometer an hour. That's average for most police officers, even seasoned traffic officers. Okay. Uh, now I'm going to ask you the tough question. Where do you come up with that average? Is it published anywhere? Has it been studied anywhere? Or is that just like something that is well, accepted uh, knowledge? Part of the radar and laser training includes a component on visual estimations. And what happens in that portion of the, of the course is the instructor and, uh, and the uh, candidate <clears throat> go outside uh, they find a location, and uh, you're given a sheet of paper, and it's, you know, vehicles 1 to 20, and then you do visual estimations, and the instructor will obtain the speed of those vehicles on either the radar or the laser, whatever they're using for the course. So it's like, okay, that gray pickup truck that's approaching us, how fast do you think it's going? Write it down. You write down your numbers, and then th- I would call it the speed of fifty of 52, and then, you know, so there's 20 so that there's 20 written there um uh, as a baseline just from the course and then you add them up and you average them out and it's plus or minus five plus or minus six because you're going to have some that you know your estimation is way out for one reason or another if your plus or minus is eight kilometers an hour and you track someone and you figure they're doing 80 and the radar says they're doing 95. Well, you're not going to take any action because it's way beyond your visual estimation. It's now you're plus or minus 15. Okay, so so you're just talking so about you're talking about taking enforcement action when it's outside yeah, of the speed estimate of, the training, of your margin. So, so with the training, you get the training at the course. The courses I taught uh, and I mentioned this, this earlier, you got two certificates for me. One would be for the radar, and the other certificate would be that you received visual estimation training. It's then your responsibility to go out there and just improve on your proficiency. 
there's no requirement to do it. There's no nothing mandated that you have to be recertified every year on uh, visual estimations or you have to have independent verification or anything like that. Um, some I know some officers. I've got uh, many friends on, on the force. Some, I have a friend on Portman Freeway. He, he, he does an annual uh, research on his visuals every year himself. But there's no requirement for that, right? So... And, and it's not but it's he not, does it he it, does it above and beyond but there's no requirement in training my understanding is there's no requirement in the law so you know so the certificate that you would issue to your students back then it was just one i've completed this course basically and it wasn't something that like there's not an approved training under the motor vehicle act i know the answer to this um for something along that line it's just like here you are here's your sheet of paper yeah, and, and what happens is you get trained to do a visual estimation, what you're looking for, how do you measure a speed, what are you measuring it against, other traffic, stationary objects, you know, uh, dips in the road, how long do you track it for, you know, uh, that, that that type of thing. Okay, so now what here, here's the of, top. What kind of factors affect your visual estimation, like sounds and shadows and nighttime and whatnot, so. Okay. The course that you taught when you were teaching that and visual estimation. I still teach them. Well, I know. I know you're still out there doing that. But my my point is, like, the, the course material you, you had, I guess you had some course material and you developed some course material. Was there anything that any police... Go ahead. I agree with you. Go ahead. Is there anything that any police agency has like developed through like scientific study or peer-reviewed study or you know study um looking at uh with some research where it's recorded looking at different circumstances like uh speed estimation in the rain speed estimation in the snow speed estimation with the sun behind you speed estimation with the sun in front of you speed estimation of large noisy vehicles speed estimation of vehicles with no lights on like is has there been any research or is it really just like you know you guys out there in your own training coming to the conclusions that that you've got well and and exactly there are some there are there's some literature floating around uh from the united states on uh speed devices i actually have that um i have that article at home i'm actually going to go through it and see if there's anything in there about actually what you're talking about when it comes to those type of studies uh it's not something that i'm aware of that happens whether or not there has been any case studies like that, I think that's... Uh, but that, again, comes down to um, officers through their training. They recognize that, you know, bigger vehicles are harder to estimate, so you adjust yourself accordingly. You see, I guess what worries me about this and what has worried me for the longest period of time uh, is that it's... You know, we have this problem that they've identified in the in the U.S. that a lot of the theories that the police had were not based on any scientific research or backing. You know, we always thought that there was no two fingerprints were alike, and then we found out that okay, um, you know, they, they're still not alike, but at least yeah. there are fingerprints that are close enough that you can make the mistake um, and I misidentify a fingerprint. And uh, it turns out. Nobody was really researching that uh, at any university or anything along that line. It was just sort of accepted knowledge in in the police world, and it was presented always in court as this is you know beyond discussion because it's been it's been covered, and you know it turns out it hadn't been covered. And I've never seen you know I've found some uh, studies about speed estimation, and they are just generally with respect to you know regular uh, lay people uh, estimating speeds for the sake of you know determining when they can make a left-hand turn and so forth and I've not found uh, any I found like reference to something but I've not found any good studies on the police ability to to identify and estimate speeds and it concerns me uh, you know years ago there was a, a news story about a guy who was stopped on point gray road back when it was uh, still open as a sort of wide open street and he was very upset about the fact that the police officer had issued him a ticket on a on the police officer's speed estimation and i was contacted by the media and i said yeah you know they can do that uh, you know they they 
prefer not to do it under those circumstances. You're better off to have the, uh, the evidence of some sort of device to confirm the speed estimate, but they can do that. But then I started thinking, like, where's the research behind it? And I, what I'm sort of left with in the end talking to you and other officers is basically it's it's really comes down to the training the officers have had and not, you know, sort of the background research behind it. Is that fair to say? Hello? Is that fair to say? Did you hear me there? Of course I did, yes. Well, I've successfully... You're mocking me. <laughs> I... <laughs> Again. I have... Well, I've successfully... <clears throat> Uh, prosecuted speeding tickets on just a visual estimation alone. It all boils down to the qualifications of the officer. And and the only way to uh, assess their qualifications or to um, challenge it is to challenge it. You have to question them in cross-examination. What training do you have? And, and that's where you kind of, you know, then you can recognize whether this officer is making chicken soup out of chicken shit or do they actually know what they're talking about. There are a lot of good police officers out there, traffic officers, who've got excellent training in visual estimations and they can really articulate on the stand the training they receive, how they, uh, how they determine the speeds or visual estimations, etc. and etc. And I think it probably boils down to the fact that Anyone can tell when a vehicle is going too fast. And I think, I think in a lot of cases, I think even the traffic JPs can take judicial notice in that, saying that, listen, everyone knows when someone's going too fast. You know, But sometimes studies- you can be wrong. I mean, I testified about the speed of a vehicle once, um, and, you know, I gave, a, I gave a fairly wide window of range, and then I said I'm being conservative, and I was. I mean, I, was, I think I was accurate in my speed estimation. Yeah, um, but, but and, how did, and how did it go for you? Well, the guy was convicted, dangerous driving, yeah, yeah. Uh, on, basically on my speed estimation. This was like yes. 30 years ago, long before exactly. I went to law school. Yeah, um, exactly. But, I, you know, I drove all day. I put on 200 kilometers a day driving because I was driving around you're, selling advertising. You're qualifying yourself. You're saying why you can. You just you just answered your own question there. So thank you. This conversation's over, and I'll talk to you later. Okay. No. Nice to talk but, to you. No problem. My pleasure. No, but you just answered your own question because you, st- you spend the time, you explain <clears> to the judge why you can assess uh, the speed of a motor vehicle, and that's how you do it. I've been driving. I've had a valid driver's license since I was 16. I've driven motorcycles and vans and trucks and cars and large vehicles and five tons. I can tell when someone's going more than 50, you know, more than the speed limit. And you go on and you go on and you give your qualifications, you give your experiences, you give your expertise. And it's like we're not talking about brain surgery. It's just determining whether a vehicle is going more than one kilometer over the speed limit. The visual estimation, the important part is if you're going to run a ticket based solely on a visual estimation, you want the speed to be really high. Not, I visually estimated them to be doing 55 in a 50 zone, so I wrote them for it. No, it's more like 80 to 100 in a 50 zone just on a visual. Then that's more likely to be believable because it's like, well, clearly the person was going more than one kilometer over the speed limit if you're saying he was doing 90 based on your qualifications and background. But you can't just walk in there and on the stand and go, well, I think he was going 90. I accept that, that, but I'm, I'm building... I'm feeling. Yeah. I'm building an argument in my head. Uh, and the argument in my head is that, well, I know, but the argument in my head is that this is, uh, you know, this is sort of like passed down knowledge. It's just sort of accepted knowledge. And there's a reason that I found that police are incapable of articulating circumstances where visual that's estimation is. It. Yeah. So I, I think that's something that we're going to have to think about. Absolutely. And, uh, you Absolutely. know, you and your, you, in your career as a, uh, as a, um, expert witness on, on, uh, traffic enforcement, uh, you know, yeah. you may, you may want we should think about that one. We've already got other studies that we're doing, but that's one that's not, you know, that seems to me that's, it's well, worth doing. you know, I have my own speed devices, so I'm not opposed to doing that. Oh, I know, I know. Well, we've got a bunch of them. We should get a group together and do it. Anyway, if we're looking for volunteer speeders, <laughs> I don't, 
I don't think we can oh, do that. I'm sure I can't agree with you. No, it just seems to me like you know that the that the police could uh, could do it in a more systematic way, where they've got you know vehicles that are driving at certain different speeds, rather than just uh, relying on a supervisor there with a device that gives a confirmation. What if that device was out that day? What if that device? What if that device was malfunctioning that day? You've got uh, uh, 15 officers who've been writing down their speed estimations, and uh, every one of them is learning it wrong. You sound uh, like a defense lawyer. Well, I mean, I just keep thinking, like, it, it sounds to me like you're going out there when you're training them, and all you're doing is testing them. You're not actually training them. Well, because if no, they're, all they're doing it, is writing it down, then what the hell are they getting out of it? I mean, they're just, you know... Well, no, but that's why what I've done <clears throat> with my syllabus, and I, I know it's not in any other one because I, I have the other syllabuses from both the RCMP and municipal, there's no real component written in, in any of the PowerPoints describing visual estimations, so I put them in. I have about, I don't know, five or six or seven slides training specifically talking about visual estimations and how you do it. So at least I took it to that level, because you're right, because other than that, you just go out and estimate cars um, with the instructor without knowing what you're looking for, how you're doing it, any of that. So I added that into my component of the training that I did for uh, the people that I trained, and I've trained police officers from all the different municipal agencies in the lower mainland and some from the island, as well as some RCMP officers, both uh, in the lower mainland, both at Ursu and, and different detachments. So um, I can't speak for the other instructors in the province and how they teach and what their course material is, but what from what I've seen, there isn't a section dealing specifically with uh, visual estimation training. I recognize that it was missing that, so I added it to mine. Well, you know I'm, I'm glad you did, but you've seen everybody else's. Yeah, you know why, because you didn't feel that it was properly being covered. Is that fair to say? Correct. Okay, now my next question is, um, would you say, you know, skipping... What's that? No, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry for the cross-examination. Um, awful. I'm starting to sweat. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> these are easy questions. Come on. Um, my next question is the... Uh, uh, what the hell was my question? Um Aside from aside from your training, that when you were training officers, and I know you still train officers occasionally, uh, it's very nice of you that you continue to do that. But how would you describe generally the training? Would you say that they're well trained uh, to do speed estimation? Would you say that they're you know that the training is merely adequate? Would you say that it's lacking and needs uh, more attention? Because from what I see, a lot of things you know, I ask police officers that on the witness stand often. Toward the end of the trial, if if it hasn't gone well for them, I'll ask them. You know, are you? Would you describe yourself as well trained in this? And very often they'll say no. And I'm wondering what well, you think. Well, the training the training syllabus covers everything. It covers the theory. It covers the setup and the testing. It covers proper. Uh, um, it covers everything. It covers your cosine. It covers your tracking history. It covers factors that affect radar and all that other stuff and laser and everything else. It covers all of that. The training covers it all. It's what you choose to retain as uh, as an operator. And too many times you've got some members that are really switched on and they get it. You get other members that just want the training so that they have it on their, on their resume. Um, and they cut the corners. I mean, here's a great example. You're saying every person is different. Is that what you're saying? I know. I, you're probably shocked <laughs> by that. I was trying to dance around it. I didn't want to come out and really say it. Yeah. But here's a good example for you, okay? In the summer of 2013, I taught a uh, calibrator course for the uh, uh, Alka Sensor uh, for DWF. And... Um, Two months later, I go to Ursu, and two of the people that I taught there on the course a couple months before were at Ursu, and uh, we had, shockingly, there was a disclosure request for our Alka Sensor records. I think the law firm was Acumen. That was, that was me. That was me. I know it was yeah, you. Of course you know it was me. So anyway. I, pulled, I pulled all the, uh, the calibration logs, and they were screwed up. They were wrong. They had... Uh, uh, you know, the wrong name for the air gas manufacturer, the tombstone data wasn't being completed, the self-check wasn't done. 
and and two of these and, and these were two of the people that I just trained two months before that. And I pulled them both aside. I said, "What the hell are you doing? What is this? You're missing." Well, we were just copying what everyone else was doing before us. Oh my god! So that <laughs> so therein lies the problem. It's like you can teach you can teach the course perfectly and cover all the points, but if the candidate, whether they're an ASD operator, a radar operator, a laser operator, if they got their head up their ass and not interested in retaining anything, then it's gone. Then they go out and they just do their own thing. They make it up as they go, they wing it, whatever. So the training itself is good. Um, it's just the members decide that they're going to get sloppy, they're going to get lazy, they're just not going to give a shit. They all get copies of the training manuals. Well, where's their manual? Well, it's at the bottom of my locker, it's lining the birdcage at home, it's whatever, right? It's like they never look at it again. Is there an exam, like a written exam at the end? Yes. And what, what, what grade do they have to get to pass? I mean... They get a pass or a fail. There is no grade. <laughs> I always think, you know, I don't want to go to the surgeon who ended up, you know, passing with uh, 63%. Uh, but, of course, you can we, pass a law school with, with 63%. Well, we only go pass or fail because um, if we said, well, you got 80%, then defense would say, so you got 20% of it wrong. So it's basically to, to thwart defense is what you're saying. It's a it's a pass or fail. That's all we do. I'm always discouraged by this. I, all these things that I keep finding to thwart the defense. Look at the difficulties <laughs> that we have getting breathalyzers, and that's all to thwart the defense. Um, you know, and here we are, the police making active decisions. And I knew the answer to that one, or at least I suspected it. An active decision to make it pass or fail, just so we can they can thwart the defense. Well, what we should do is we should be FOIing or requesting through disclosure the person's exam results. And if they destroy it, then they'd be destroying evidence, especially when we're talking about now, know, really, visual now, estimation. But are you going to go that far on a speeding ticket? Well, you know, I well, you know, we go pretty far on speeding tickets sometimes. I mean, it's well, yeah, <laughs> but you're not going to go that far. No, well, I don't think we'd get it. Uh, you know, well, we might get that. it through an FOI, but we we wouldn't get it through disclosure because we wouldn't be able to persuade a, a judge or JP that, that it was. That's the problem right there. You don't want to come across as being unreasonably unreasonable. That's why you have me. Well, I don't, you know, I, I can be almost unreasonably unreasonable sometimes if it's in the defense of my client. That's my job. I know. No, yeah. I agree with you there. But, um, but uh, um, I think there's other avenues that you guys can be looking at. So, well... Visual estimation of target speed has been an ongoing concern for me. That was the thing that I really wanted to talk to you about. We fleshed it out a bit. I have more and more questions now, and I have to sit down and think about how I'm going to come at it. And uh, we're going to continue this discussion at some other day. But as the Anytime. guest host, as the guest host, uh, I'm out of time. So nice to speak with you again, Grant. Uh, if Anytime, you Paul. if you um, need to contact Grant, you can contact him through us. He also has his own website. Uh, and that is available for lawyers to contact him. He uh, he um, is a uh, expert witness who uh, assists with all sorts of things: drinking, driving investigations, a lot of those, I guess, huh? Yes. Yeah. And um, and any traffic enforcement investigation, so violation tickets or dangerous driving or anything else in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, he is uh, extremely experienced, uh, former corporal. And um, so there you go. Thanks, Grant. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Bye now. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tim and Grant, for coming on the show this week. And thank you, Kyla, for having enough trust to allow me to uh, to conduct your uh, Driving Law podcast. This is uh, the podcast where we deal with all things with respect to driving law. It surprises me uh, how often we see cases that uh, start uh, with a police pulling over a motor vehicle that end up being precedent-setting cases in the country with respect to charter rights and with respect to the evidence that has to be put before the court. Um, and so uh, it is a wonderful show that Kyla's got going here, and uh, I enjoy being on it as a guest and a guest host uh, this week. So uh, join us again next week for Driving Law with Kyla Lee. If you need to get a hold of me, you can find me at uh, our office website, VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Yeah.